Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is April 7th, 2021, and you're listening to Episode 40, our Season 1 finale. We'll take a look back at all the spirits we've had on the show, as well as some of our favorite moments. Don't touch that device. We'll be right back. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can, by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Over the last year, Carrie and I have hosted several dozens of spirited whiskey folk on Spirits of Whiskey. Of our 40-plus guests, many of them were stage performers, actors, singers, dancers in their pre-whiskey lives. This is true of our very first guest, Beam Centauri Single Malt Whiskey's ambassador, Simon Brooking. I think it's interesting to note that you, see, with many of the brand ambassadors uh, across the industry, that many of the most successful brand ambassadors come from a performance background. And I think it's, to me, it's just having, understanding how to, not just to present, but to be getting the message across. And mm -hmm. it's very important to, to, we like to say, you got to play to the little old lady in the back row. You got to make sure that you are clear, concise, and it's about storytelling. And so much of the spirits industry is about telling story of your product, the story of our whiskey. Not only is Simon one of the many former performers that we've had on the show, but he is also a great storyteller and toast maker. Here's a story about one of Simon's early work trips that he took with other brand ambassadors, including Rick Edwards, who we hosted in episode seven. Take a listen. Uh, I was hired as one of the original brand ambassadors for Diageo. I was working on a local level, but there was a national team which was comprised of the likes of Rick Edwards in Southern California, Stephen Beale oh. in Northern California, Marcy Rutterhausen in Miami, Spike McClure in, in New York as well. And we were all working on a regional level, but there was a training trip to bring us back to Scotland. And that was with a trainer that was brought along with, of course, Evan Katnack, who a dear friend and a, an amazing man in the business who worked at many of the top distilleries from the Diageo days. He was the lead for this trip over to Scotland to visit, of course, all of the Diageo distilleries and to learn about them and to learn how to present. 
And we, so we were on a coach, on a bus, traveling through the highlands and, and out to Isla. And this trainer that was on the, the coach with us, her job was to make sure that we were up to our standards and our knowledge base to be able to to be able to present when we got back to the US and this put the fear of god in all of the ambassadors <laughs> they were because there were pop up quizzes that were happening all the time anytime on the bus off the bus and it really worried the ambassadors and this was back when we did, didn't have phones and google you, you just had books and written notes so they were in the books and they had their nose in the books the whole time as we were driving through the highlands and the lowlands of scotland they were missing everything <laughs> and that was my concern was they were going to be taking back a, a negative experience of Scotland. So we were about three quarters of the way through the trip and people were just miserable. And so we got to Cardew, which is the home of Johnny Walker, Cardew, right? And a beautiful distillery, just a jewel box of a distillery. And Ian Williamson welcomes us at the door. Welcome to the home, the home of Johnny Walker and of Cardew. You, this is your home, is our home. If, our home is your home. If there anything that you need, please let us know. And so Spike and I had the conversation and we took Ian aside and said, listen, these folks here are just miserable. And that's the experience they're going to take back to the United States. So Ian spoke to Evan Katnack and said, listen, please let them enjoy the rest of the year in Scotland. <laughs> and yes, there is a lot to be learned. There's a lot of knowledge gained. And particularly, I think, for all the book learning that you do and those that you can watch on YouTube, where you really learn is when you are there present, when you are standing in the distillery, when you are standing, Carrie, right. um, uh, you're standing on the dock at Lafroy. You understand you, you're there. Yep. It, it, you absorb so much more. They were given a reprieve. They were told, just please soak it all in, throw the books away. And that was truly a golden time. In our second episode, we discuss the evolution of the whiskey glass from the two-handled wooden bowl called a quake to today's preferred nosing glass, the Glencairn. Martin Duffy, our second guest and second former performer, told us about the birth of this revolutionary whiskey glass. Talking about the history of whiskey glasses and whiskey vessels, it came about in that there is just a young kid with a dream by the name of Raymond Davidson, who back in about 1981, I believe it was, he had been a crystal salesman, and he started his own company making decanters and cut crystal tumblers. And about 15, 16 years later, he was looking around, he was noticing, you know, whiskey was making a return to prominence after a, kind of a slow, long slide. He noticed that there was no whiskey glass. Yeah, people would be drinking out of a rocks glass. Usually, especially here in the States, you got those old, thick, dirty tumblers, which were great mm -hmm. because they, they were a little harder to break. They weren't actually conducive to really enjoying a whiskey. Anyways, he came up with a, a general design for the Glencairn glass. But he goes, ah, oh, who the heck is going to be using a glass like this? Oh, people don't use that. Eh. So he, uh, he put it up on the shelf. And about four or five years later, his son Paul came to work at the company, he sees the glass. He says, Dad, what's this? He goes, oh, it's an idea I had. I don't know. 
And so the next thing you know, they turn around. Paul invites a number of master blenders to put their two cents in, maybe help with the design, maybe create uh, the right width for the bowl, uh, the length of the neck, the size of the mouth. Should it have a stem? Should it just have the thick base? And voila, the, uh, the Glencairn glass was born. When we spoke to Allison Park, founder of Bren Whiskey, she not only knew all three of our past guests, including Doug Stone, who we'll talk about later, she was our first brand owner and former ballerina. In our conversation with Allison, we learned how she ended up making her unique single malt in France. How did you end up in France? Oh, I didn't mean to. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you took a right at Iceland. Is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. They're speaking the language of plié and grand amant. I can, I can be here. <laughs> um, I, you know what? I really did not intend to ever have my own whiskey company. My second dream was to be an importer. And I was like, I'm going to import and really be the conduit into the U.S. I really wanted to see. Don't make something that the Scotch have already been able to do. Do something that is original and unique and intentionally is different Mm -hmm. and different with respect to to tradition, but use stuff that's local and indigenous to wherever you're making this because A, that'll make it interesting and and B, like there's there's no reason to compete with Scotch. We can all have a place in the playground. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Mm-hmm. So, so they all thought I was crazy, and I was basically realizing what I was asking for was terroir and a sense of provenance in single malt whiskeys made outside of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And no one was doing it the way I saw possible, and no one wanted. I kept giving my idea away. Do this. I'll you own the brand. I'll start the import company. I'll just basically make some sales for you. Is really what I was offering. I'm so glad everyone turned me down. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was like, oh, this is silly. I'm just asking people in the wrong place. And I was like, let me go to France. I bet the French will want to do this because terroir is their thing. They're the number one Scotch consumer per capita in the world. Very rich distillation history. Mm -hmm. So when I went, there was only four guys making whiskey there before me. And one of them welcomed me into his distillery. And he was like, oh, that's a really nice idea. No, go back to New York, little girl. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And luckily, she found a farmer in Cognac to partner with her, and Bren Whiskey was born. Allison touched on a couple of terms that have come up in several episodes, including 24 with Matt Hoffman, co-founder and master distiller at Seattle's Westland Distillery, and two episodes with guests Robin Robinson and Rob Arnold, coming up soon in Season 2. Those two terms, terroir and provenance. Stay tuned for more on that subject. Hosting our next guests was one of the highlights of the season for me, because as a twin, I love talking to other multiples. The Van Winkle triplets, fourth-generation descendants of the famous bourbon maker Pappy Van Winkle, created Pappy & Co. in order to bring Pappy merchandise to its whiskey fans. Which one of you came up with the idea for Pappy & Company, and and how easy or difficult was it to get your sisters on board? It was so easy. It was actually, we all remember the instant when the idea hit us. And we were in, in Michigan one Christmas and, you know, sitting at my parents' kitchen island. And I said, we should just start this business. You know, we never had merchandise associated with the brand. And people were asking, everyone was asking. And yep. so. What year was this? Christmas of 12. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I was underwater busy with my design business that I do for my day job. And so immediately. That's Chenault, correct? This is, yes, mm-hmm. this is Chenault speaking. And so we just, I mean, everyone was on board right away. And the girls went home and got to work and, and did it. Mm-hmm. Started the business. Carrie and I were in agreement that we would kind of go full in on this. And Chenault would continue with her design company. So um, I was living in Louisville, still am, and Carrie was still out in Sun Valley. So we kind of immediately assumed our roles and I would be operational. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of fell into the more creative um, front end side of things. And so we started the business out of my basement and we re- operated that way for probably almost two years. Oh, wow. And then we moved into an actual warehouse, a little bit of a warehouse situation. And then we've landed in what we call our final resting place <laughs> in a, a great, um, we, we think, <laughs> in a great historic building downtown. This first season, we've had a couple repeat guests, the first of which is the wonderful Nicole Austin, general manager and distiller at Cascade Hollow Distilling Company, makers of George Dickel Tennessee Whiskey and Rye. In Nicole's first interview on episode six, we learned how she went from testing wastewater in the sores of New York to making life water in the mountains of Tennessee. In our second interview with Nicole, episode 32, she introduced us to her new whiskey brand, Cascade Moon. In this clip, taken from our VIP lounge series, The Malting Floor, we learn how Nicole viewed Tennessee whiskey when she was first exploring the spirit. When I first got into whiskey and, you know, very quickly kind of fancied myself a bit of a snob about whiskey, even though I was still just learning, I preferred bourbon, right? Okay. And I knew about bourbon. I liked bourbon. And my perception of Tennessee whiskey was that it was somehow kind of bourbon minus something. But it's bourbon plus, really. (laughs) It is. That's what I know now. But I didn't know then, right? You know, all I knew was it had basically the same rules as bourbon, but then it also used the Lincoln County process, you know, which was this charcoal mellowing. So my ignorant assumption was that they took bourbon and filtered something out of it. And I loved bourbon, so why would I want it to be any less than it was? <laughs> right, right. In the case of Dickel, they filtered out an E. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. We, we've removed the E and you have only the finest SKY left. Yes, I believe there are a number of American brands that eschewed the E in whiskey. I think George Dickel and Maker's Mark are the only two really well-known ones that do. In episode seven, we spoke to our good friend Rick Edwards, yet another former entertainer and currently senior master of whiskey and national ambassador at Stranahan's Colorado Single Malt. We asked Rick about the training trip he went on with Simon Brooking and learned what Simon conveniently left out of his version of the story. As a friend of Rick's, I was aware of his television work, but what I didn't know until speaking with David Blackmore was the other kinds of entertaining Rick used to do. Check it out. Simon and Marty both mentioned the historic trip to Scotland where you guys were riding a bus and learning things in a book and missing all the scenery. The first time we were there with the National Mentor Program, mm-hmm. you know, just before we went on to Masters of Scotch at the Royal Lightning Bar Academy. What Simon forgot to tell you was that he, <laughs> he comes running out of a pub. I can't remember if we were on Isla or if we were on Sky. But he slips on sheet crap and breaks his ankle and had to go to the hospital. So I always Jeez. remember, I always remember Spike McClure chasing Simon out of the pub and him slipping on uh, some sheet crap and, and breaking. Yeah, he didn't tell us about that part. No, no. Of course. Now, not only were you a TV guy, but you also danced a little. 
Maybe did what, a little modeling. What are you talking about? I, I, I have no I, idea what you're maybe, talking maybe about. Maybe a little Chippendales. What is this Chippendales? Have you been talking to David Blackmore? <laughs> I swear it's Blackie that drops that. No, I did dance for Chippendales for four years. Um, I was part of the uh, American team when we were celebrating the 20th anniversary. <laughs> When I first started drinking whiskey, I was constantly given strange looks when placing my order at a bar. People would do a double take and say, did I hear you right? Followed by a, wow, I don't get many women ordering whiskey. So when I set out on my whiskey journey, I interviewed as many women as I could that had a like mind when it came to the water of life. About five years ago, I met a woman in Oregon who had a dream of starting her own distillery. Last winter, just before the lockdown, I went to a whiskey tasting that featured Freeland Spirits, a woman-owned distillery out of Portland, Oregon. Realizing that the woman I had interviewed years prior was the owner of said company, I knew we needed to reach out. On episode eight, we interviewed Freeland Spirits owner Jill Kuehler and master distiller Molly Troop. This clip is from Carrie's lost interview with Jill and can be viewed in its entirety in our VIP lounge. I'm Jill, and I am starting Portland's first female-owned and run whiskey distillery called Freeland Spirits. I always wanted to start my own business, and at the same time, I've always loved whiskey, so it seemed pretty fortuitous that that should be the concept of the business. And there aren't a lot of women in the whiskey world, so that was also really compelling to me um, to really kind of crack that open and, and um, start Portland's first female-run whiskey distillery. I'm from Texas originally. I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, and as I was starting to think about the new business, I really wanted to honor the women of my family. And so the name Freeland Spirits uh, comes from my grandma. My mother's maiden name is Freeland, and so this is a bit in tribute to Mima Freeland, uh, who, though she never touched a drop of booze in her in her life, uh, she did teach me that the best things come from scratch. Here at Spirits of Whiskey, we always pride ourselves on bringing as many stories from women and people of color as we can. By doing so, we have met some fascinating people along the way. SR Distilled, based in Oceanside, California, is veteran-owned by distiller Sean Hallman. Sean is making some very interesting spirits in Southern California, including a rice-based whiskey. To learn more about Sean and his craft, check out Episode 9. Lynn House of Heaven Hill Brands was our guest on Episode 11. She's not only a very well-known brand ambassador of color, she's also one of our many former performing artists. My degree is actually in theater, and so as a professional actor... I continued to work in bars and restaurants as a way to make means in between uh, gigs. And the exposure just continued to grow. And I discovered more spirits and started learning about spirits. I started educating myself. I went to the Academy of Spirits and Fine Service, went to the Academy of Culinary and Mixology, both of which were here in Chicago. I also went through, you know, attended Bar Smarts. And mm -hmm. I just got bit by this bug and fell in love with it and continue to study. And I still continue to the study, even in the position I am now. So it's it's been a, a 50 plus year whiskey journey for myself. Wow. Well, Philip and I have a lot of fun tasting flights of whiskey with our guests. Not all of them are here to highlight their spirit or at least not a liquid one. In episode 10, we host Peggy No Stevens and Susan Regler, authors of Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? And we got to hear the story of how the two met. How did you two come to know each other? 
Well, through Susan, bourbon. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> I was going to say, ironically, through bourbon. And Susan, do you want to talk about the event you attended that I did? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the one where I don't remember you at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be the one. How much bourbon What's did you have, Susan? Well, you know, there were there were a lot of people there. Actually, the cigar event, yeah. The cigar well, event, you know, exactly. A, a, good host, a good host is never the center of attention. That's well, right. thank geez. you That's for that. Thank you. Oh, you are good, Philip. Wow. (laughs) Other non tasting episodes include number 27 with guest Julian Van Winkle III, where we spoke about Wright Thompson's new book, Pappyland, which we'll touch on later. Lastly, in episode 26, we asked Greg Swartz, director of the documentary The Water of Life, a whiskey film, how passing quality time with extraordinary whiskey makers shifted the film from a planned Scottish travelogue focusing on whiskey production to a more in-depth examination of several remarkable spirits of whiskey. How did you take the idea for a film about whiskey and sort of develop the film around it? How did the film bloom from it? I think that it changed a bit, to be honest. It started as a bit more, a little bit more of a travelogue. It was going to be a, you know, let's go to 17 distilleries and do a little bit about each one. And then more and more, we sort of got immersed in the stories aspect of it. And more and more, some of those stories kind of took front and center Mm -hmm. and other ones did not. Mm -hmm. So it certainly shifted in our focus as it developed. The Water of Life is playing now. For more information on Showtimes, go to the movie's website at www.wateroflifefilm.com. In episode 12, we interviewed Becky Harris, president and chief distiller at Catoctin Creek Distillery Company in Virginia. Becky is one half of the first married couple whiskey making team that we spoke to this season. My husband came to me with this idea of starting a distillery and I was like, this is the craziest thing I've heard of in a long time. But okay, I want to be supportive. So I said, how about you work on a business plan? And so he, because in my mind, obviously you will see the error of your way. For the benefit of our listeners, Becky's referring to Scott Harris, her husband and co-founder of Catoctin Creek. Basically, I sent him off to do a business plan and he almost gave up. So, you know, when he came to me with the business plan, it was like, he keeps his day job. I go make the whiskey, do all the stuff every day and, you know, no pay. And we basically take all our savings and put it into the whiskey business. I looked at it like, if we're ever going to take a chance and do this, we had had a break from my income. So I'm as cheap as I'm ever going to (laughs) be. Other season one whiskey couples include Jennifer and Justin Stiefel of Heritage Distilling, and Ashley and Colby Fry of Fry Ranch. Although each of our couples that own distilleries have fantastic stories, Justin and Jennifer's story includes changing a 200-year-old law to allow Native American tribes to build and operate distilleries on their reservations. We were getting rid of the break ground. This was February of 2018, and this was being built on trust land. So it's land held in trust by the federal government for the benefit of the Chehalis tribe. This is how almost all reservations are set up in the U.S. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which oversees all the land and is the one that holds the land in trust, sent a letter saying, hey, you can't build a distillery because we found this statute from 1834 from Andrew Jackson's era that said anybody who sets up a distillery on Indian land uh, is subject to a fine. And basically at that time, the Department of the Army can go in and break up the stills. Hear the details of how Justin helped to repeal the Andrew Jackson-era law on episode 17. And stay tuned in season two for our follow-up interview with members of the Chehalis tribe. 
Up next, we'll talk to Fawn Weaver about how she tried to become a lady of leisure, and David Blackmore and Brendan McCarran, who'll discuss A Tale of Cake. Plus, we'll hear from Greg Schneider and more. Stay with us. Spirits of Whiskey explores the wide world of whiskey through high-profile and out-of-the-way makers, blenders, writers, ambassadors, innovators, and pioneers. And we've been traveling the world virtually to bring these people and their whiskey journeys to you. As season one of our podcast approaches its finale, we realize just how many great stories we've put aside to share with you at a later date. And that date is here. Beginning in March, Spirits of Whiskey is offering access to its new VIP content page to loyal listeners and whiskey lovers who want more. And when it comes to whiskey, who doesn't want more? For as little as 99 cents a month, you can have access to videos related to topics discussed on past podcasts, as well as our new series, The Malting Floor. At $4.99 a month, you'll enjoy access to our new webcast series and other spinoffs currently in development. And with a premium contribution of $9.99 a month, you'll get all of this before it's available to anyone else. Sign up now to become a supporter at anchor.fm slash spirits hyphen of hyphen whiskey. That's whiskey with an E. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, just visit our website, spiritsofwhiskey.com, to create your personal VIP access account. We can't wait to see you in the VIP lounge. Join us. Greg Snyder, CEO of Charleston, South Carolina's Grain and Barrel Spirits, makers of chicken cock whiskey, is a veritable Johnny Whiskey Seed. He's had a decision-making hand in more brands, both startup and well-established, than one can shake a stick at. In episode 14, Greg shared some stops along the way of his thus far 42 years in whiskey. So I started in the industry with uh, Joseph E. Sigerman Sons. They had a facility in Louisville, Kentucky at that time. And interviewed with them and, and actually uh, was offered a job as a frontline supervisor and in the production division. It was, you know, it was a great training ground. It, it seems if you were aggressive, you wanted to learn, did learn and you perform well, uh, they kind of put you on a fast track and moved you around quite a bit. So in the five years that that facility operated, I basically worked in every single apartment uh, within the, that facility, every f- single production department from, you know, just the, the distillery to the dryer house. Uh, to the barrel warehouse, filling barrels, putting barrels in the in the warehouse, taking barrels out, dumping barrels, uh, filtration, blending, processing, bottling, uh, receiving, shipping, maintenance, quality. I was very fortunate. As I said, it was a great training ground and kind of kind of laid the the foundation for my career. In episode fifteen, we spoke with one of our most spirited guests, Fawn Weaver, founder and CEO of Uncle Nears Premium Whiskey. Prior to discovering Nearest Green's legendary story about teaching Jack Daniel how to make whiskey, Fawn's husband tried to get her to slow down and become a woman of leisure. I wish my husband was here because he tells a much funnier version of this. But <laughs> I, well, I decided for peace of home to get out of the restaurant business. And at that time, you know, this with Hollywood is you have most of the wives are, you know, they're women who lunch, right? Mm -hmm. So many of them are women who lunch. And so Keith, God bless him, had this thought process of, oh, I want you to have an opportunity to be a woman who lunch. Now, (laughs) I have been an entrepreneur since I was 18. And I told him it wasn't going to work. But he didn't, he didn't believe me. And so every day I would have a different business idea as to what my next investment was going to be, what I was going to do. And every day he'd say, did you go to the spa? Have you even tried? Like this was literally an everyday conversation. 
The rest of the story in its entirety can be heard on our series, The Malting Floor, in the VIP Lounge. To hear how the Weavers discovered the nearest green story and ended up buying the old Jack Daniels property where it all began, tune into episode 15. Shortly after our interview with Vaughn, the first head distiller apprentice in the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative was announced. In episode 18, we spoke with Tracy Franklin to learn more. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Fawn, and we learned some bit tidbits about this initiative. So when we found out you were the first recipient, we were very excited to call you up and have you come join us. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's an incredible honor to be a part of this program. I think it, like so many other brands and companies within the whiskey industry, everybody wants to help and they want to create diversity in a way that hasn't been seen before. And I think that being a part of the first team, Nearest and Jack seem to be the first to have just jumped on a program and get it started. So being the first to hit market is pretty incredible. On episode 16, we visited the cherry capital of the world, namely Traverse City, Michigan, and talked to Chris Fredrickson, co-founder and distiller at Traverse City Whiskey Company. Traverse makes a cherry-infused whiskey. And Chris shared the distillery's process for producing it. T- typically for any batch of the cherry whiskey, we blend together eight, eight bourbon barrels and dilute the whiskey down to just about 70 proof. And then we using, it's like a cheesecloth bag. We take the fresh Montmorency sour cherries. We usually do about 10 pounds for every two barrels. So typically there's about 40 pounds of fruit in the whiskey. The, the fruit steeps in the whiskey. And then after a few days, as soon as our distil- our other distiller deems it ready, then we bottle it. Tamdu Distillery, located in Nakando, a village in Scotland's Speyside region, ages its single malt whiskies exclusively in ex-sherry casks. In episode 19, Gordon Dundas, international brand ambassador at Ian McLeod Distillers, told us how Tamdu maintains a tradition no longer observed by most Speyside distilleries. Tamdu really has been matured solely in sherry casks from start to finish. And that's down to producing that old style sherry Speyside whiskey that a lot of brands don't do anymore because of the availability of sherry casks. So we've made a conscious decision with Tamdu to produce less because of the availability of casks, mm-hmm. but to produce something that is wonderfully premium, brilliant tasting, giving an experience to the consumer that's very different. So when you taste this beautiful 15-year-old, you notice that richer, thicker mm-hmm. mouthfeel that comes from the sherry casks. One element common to many of our guests' whiskey journeys is career transition, as in they made a midlife move from something thoroughly not whiskey to all whiskey all the time. Joe Beatrice, founder of Barrelcraft Spirits in Louisville, Kentucky, was one such guest. In episode 20, he shared his shift. I was done with using counterproductive tools called email and PowerPoint and making meetings and going to meetings. And my wife and I were actually at a distillery. And I just had this moment where this is what I think we should be doing. And so then I transitioned from all the things that I knew about building brands, like creating products, differentiating products, understanding market, and building a brand, and and set out to build Barrelcraft Spirits. And it was about a one-year process from the day that I had that inspiration to when we bottled our first case. Chris Seals, co-founder and CEO at Still Austin Whiskey Company in Austin, Texas, spoke with us on the bewildering economics of opening and operating a distillery. Yet more evidence that the whiskey sector is driven by people, the spirits of whiskey, if you will, more than numbers. To hear his story, check out episode 21. 
the brothers Teeling, Jack, founder and managing director, and Stephen, sales and marketing director at Ireland's Teeling Whiskey Company. Episode 22 featured what was this season's longest and perhaps most colorful interview. Among the many topics we covered was the power of distilleries to help revive economies, specifically Teeling's role in reviving post-Great Recession Dublin. Around the world, beginning in the 1950s, urban planners were trying to move industry manufacturing out of the cities. Yeah. And now they're doing everything they can to bring it back in. Yeah. And I think we were a little bit behind the curve because it already started it was happening. Like, you know, it's happening in Brooklyn. It's happening in parts of, of cities all around the U.S. And so uh, we're not at the cutting edge of urban planning or anything like that. So it took a bit of education uh-huh. and showing them what has happened in other cities and why it's uniquely, Dublin was a unique example of why they should do it. And, and they, it was great. At a high level, they bought into it. It still didn't make it. You know, the paper pushers, it took a lot to get them on board. But we were at one stage, the head planner was said, look, you put in that planning application, we're going to refuse it. And once you get a refuse, it's very hard to, to reopen it. But we believed in what we were doing. And thankfully, we got good support at a high level that, that got it through. And the local community wanted it, which was even better. On episode 23, we interviewed Bruce Joseph, master distiller at San Francisco's Hoteling and Company, formerly Anchor Distilling. Bruce looked back on his 40 years in the business and his perhaps ignoble reason for taking a job in 1980 at what was then Anchor Brewing. These two sisters that I went to school with, their brother had gone to school in Southern California at USC, but he came up and he stayed up here for a while and he was a home brewer. While he was here, he said, I'm going down to Anchor and see if I can get a job. And he happened to walk into Anchor on a day that they needed him. (laughs) (laughs) They put him to work on the bottling line. Nice. And after about six months, he was going to quit because, you know, he hadn't intended on settling here long term. And he asked me, he said, they need someone to take my place. Are you interested? And we had been drinking free beer for those six months. And Oh, well, of course, that's a given. You're going to have to take it. Yeah. You need to keep that supply line open. (laughs) I had a job then as a proofreader for one of the, well, at the time, I think it was the big eight accounting firms. And so you can imagine how exciting that was. Um, (laughs) Fun, fun, fun. And so I took it. And when I started here at Anchor, there were only 13 employees. Wow. It was just a great time to join the company. The company was small. It was growing. And so you could see after about a month, I could see that it was something I was interested in doing. And one of the things that really attracted me to it was the attitude and spirit of the people who worked here. You know, it was really the early days of craft brewing. It was, you know. Mm -hmm. This is 1980, yes? 1980. Mm -hmm. About, I think, a month or so after I started here, you know, Sierra Nevada did their first brew. We interviewed Matt Hoffman, master distiller at Seattle's Westland Distillery, in episode 24. In addition to making great American whiskeys, he ages some of them in a very rare American oak, unknown to most people, even most whiskey makers. And his remarks are food for thought, and perhaps argument, when considering the concept of terroir in whiskey. We are trying to make something evocative of our idea of the West. The West has always represented possibility and the ability to create something new. And that's, that's a really, really beautiful thing. We are aging in a local species of white oak that only grows here. The Garayana, correct? The Garayana, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, again, we dove into this like straight away. It was 2011. We sourced our first casks made from Gary Oak. And for people who are listening, the Gary Oak is the 
only native oak species that grows here in the Pacific Northwest. It essentially grows along the I-5 corridor, which stretches from really from Vancouver, BC at the Canadian border down to essentially San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, in a 50 mile wide stretch of land. And it's really, really rare, but it's very different from the American white oak that is basically yeah. used by all other whiskeys everywhere around the world. We have replanted 750 new mm-hmm. oaks, which you know teaches you a lot about the habitat that these oaks grow and thrive in. And it's something that as part of our Garyana whiskey program, you know, is the replanting of these Gary Oak. Coming up, we'll hear from Jacob Call, Master Distiller at Green River Distilling, Julian Van Winkle III of Old Rip Van Winkle Distillery, and our favorite mash lass, Lauren Oliver. We'll be right back. When it comes to wine, there are few terms sexier than estate bottled. All that means, of course, is that the wines are bottled on the same site where the grapes are grown and the wine is made. Still, it's pretty rare and thus sexy. When it comes to whiskey making, it's rarer still. In episode 25, we interviewed husband and wife whiskey team Ashley and Colby Fry, founders of Fry Ranch Estate Distillery in Fallon, Nevada, and discussed the operation's estate status. It's 99.9% everything is you. Like the only thing you're actually sourcing and bringing in is the yeast. Is that right? The yeast. Yeah, from the whiskey. Yep. Wow, that's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. You are self-sustained. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, Expression of us, I think that. Very much so. Yeah, we also buy barrels, but we kind of tailored it towards like an estate winery, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, where we grow a bottle, produce everything all right here. You bottle on site, do you not? Yeah, they, they buy their barrels and everything else. But in the distilling world, estate doesn't mean the same thing. And so we didn't mm-hmm. use the word estate, but we like this farmers plus distillers. And that's that really kind of explains us better than an estate distillery. Yeah, ground to glass. Yes. Yep. That's our trademark is from ground to glass. In episode 27, we spoke with Julian Van Winkle III, president at the old Rip Van Winkle Distillery, makers of Pappy Van Winkle bourbon and rye, and how the wild and sometimes outlaw secondary whiskey market is a bad deal for both makers and consumers. Julian, you did touch on something that I've heard that I believe is probably true, but I wanted to talk to you about the secondary market and how they overprice and oversell your whiskeys. I'm assuming that makes you rather mad because that's not what you would want to sell it for. Yeah, I guess some of the people that see those prices think that maybe we're reaping the benefit Mm -hmm. from those huge prices. But obviously, we have a suggested retail price and our Mm -hmm. distributors have a regular markup and our retailers are asked to sell at a regular markup. And some of them do, and then some of them also take advantage of the scarcity, so they mark the price Mm -hmm. up quite a bit. But the worst, you know, the the secondary market, the worst part of that, number one, being illegal, because alcohol is very tricky to sell. Indeed. a license to do it and that's all illegal totally but we're also worried about counterfeiting which is happening Mm -hmm. so if you buy a bottle of whiskey that's several hundred bucks or several thousand dollars it could be something else in there right we spoke with doug stone founder of fourwhiskeylovers.com an e-commerce site in episode three as you'll hear from this excerpt he luckily agrees with julian you know if it's out there we can probably get it you know there's certain things that Frankly, I'd rather not be bothered with. Um, we don't do, you know, I get emails all the time about Pappy. I, it's just not in our wheelhouse. That's the whole thing that we don't, that sort of competitive driving up of prices is something we don't like to be part of. It's a great whiskey, and I don't want to, I don't, you know, I just don't feel right charging people that. For, it's just not the right thing. We asked both Julian and his daughters the same question about Julian's involvement with Pappy and Company. Check out their answers. How closely do you work with the old Rip Van Winkle Distillery or its operator, Buffalo Trace, and the parent 
company, the Sazerac Company. We definitely kind of have that creative ability to do what we want, and we make sure we approve things by my dad. So because Mm -hmm. we have a licensing agreement with the distillery, and so they get a royalty of everything we sell with their trademarks. But Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. other than that, it's really just kind of an organic, natural process that we just want to make sure that everyone's in agreement that it's it's an okay product. Mm -hmm. Because we still Mm -hmm. are a family-owned business, and Buffalo Trace is our partner. We really Mm -hmm. just work with our dad. It just really Mm -hmm. stays within the family. So do they bring food items for you to taste for approval or anything like that? Like the hot sauce? Uh, Not really. No. (laughs) They're pretty good at picking that stuff out. You know, if they they do use our brand, they're supposed to run it by us, but a lot of stuff just shows up sometimes. So hopefully they seem to forget that sometimes. uh, Forget old dad, old granddad, if you will. David Blackmore, master brand ambassador for both the Glenmorangie and Ardbeg single malt scotch whiskies, was one of our repeat guests. After his debut in episode 13, he rejoined us in episode 28, accompanied by Brendan McCarran, the two brands' head of maturing whiskey stocks. Together, they told a tale of cake. Talk to us about the reception. It's been really, really exciting and, and heartening to see just how people have responded to A Tale of Cake. How did you happen upon Tokai, Hungarian dessert wine? I mean, that's just not something you see. Yeah, so the idea comes first. The idea was we were talking about happiness or joy, I think was the word. You know, do you know, we want to make a whiskey that is, puts a smile on your face. You know, a whiskey that is, isn't something that's super serious and super traditional. But we were thinking about how do we make something that's just fun? How do we make something that kind of captures that kind of joy that we have when we come into the lab and make whiskies? And so we started thinking about that and we started playing off each other. Like, well, what puts a smile on your face? And we started to chance upon this sort of idea of sometimes you grab a bite to eat. Me and David might be in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so we go and grab a quick bite to eat somewhere. And it's just that one time in 10 where they say, do you want to see the dessert menu? Or, and you go, yeah, actually, I quite fancy something sweet and delicious and flavorful. That one time you go, oh, should we grab a wee cake? You know, we can take a cake or something sweet. That was the idea. And that really got the creative juices flowing. And we started right now, well, if you were to make a cake in a glass, a Glenmorangie in a glass that was a cake, what would it taste like, the fruity and floral spirit of Glenmorangie, into something that tasted like an amazing cake? And this is 100% Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill had worked with Tokai in the past. So that took us back to the amazing Hungarian dessert wine of Tokai. And the casks, they're European oak, but they're Hungarian oak. So it's the, the Quercus Roba are growing in Hungary. And that means you get the sweetness of the wine, but you get this rounded, tannic, spicy note from the oak as well. And when you put that all together, it makes this whiskey that tasted just like this set of tasting notes would kind of wrote out in our minds four years before when we had the idea for this whiskey. In episode 29, we talked to third-generation distiller Jacob Call, who, in addition to making his own whiskey at Owensboro, Kentucky's Green River Distilling Company, makes whiskeys under other well-known labels. Including Bradshaw Bourbon, the brand founded by NFL Hall of Fame quarterback Terry Bradshaw, and Broken Barrel Whiskey, owned by Seth Ben-Haim, who made an appearance in episode 35 and will be a guest early in season two. One of those private label projects is Wheelhorse Whiskey, created in collaboration with Terry Lozoff of Latitude Beverage Company. Together, they share the satisfaction of jointly creating and building a new brand from the ground up. 
we uh, our whole kind of vision with spirits brands and wine brands is to find great producers that we can work with, like Owensboro Distilling and Green River, and bring those products to market as as best a price as we can. So it's just what our goal was, and we were able to do it. You know, working with the team at, at Green River. You do a lot of private label distilling, correct? We do. So you you produce a great deal of product that, that is sold under other brands. Mm-hmm. We do. And, you know, it's been great to work with somebody like Terry, you know, with Latitude and, and Wheel Horse. This was really one of our sort of our first uh, big releases of, uh, of a brand for a private, private brand customer. Several of this season's guest distillers, in addition to being accomplished whiskey producers, have mastered other spirits as well. In episode 30, Denny Potter, general manager and master distiller at Maker's Mark Bourbon, shared the unexpected career twists that led to a three-year stint making rum in the Virgin Islands. Little did we know at the time, when I came on board at Maker's in 03, we had four master distillers, which would be master distillers, all here at the same time. And it was myself, Steve Nally, Kevin Smith, and Dave Pickerel. We're part of a group of distillation companies or liquor companies, and we had acquired the Crusion brand, but we also acquired the operation down in St. Croix in the USVI. So they came in 2010, they asked me to go down as general manager. The idea was I was going to go there for three years and then come back to Makers. The comfort of knowing I was going to go down there, learn about rum, learn from the Nelthrips. And so I'm like, man, this is, you know, this is phenomenal. Plus I get to come back to Makers and myself and the family. We moved down to St. Croix for three years. Our guests on episode 31, Michael Scully and Paul Corbett of Clonakilty Distillery in County Cork, Ireland, graciously provided a tasting kit featuring the three Irish whiskeys we tasted with them for our first listener giveaway. Congratulations to superfan Stuart McInerney of Meriden, Connecticut. Sean Josephs, founder and blender of Pinhook Whiskey, told us how he came up with the unique naming scheme for his whiskey, and we learned a little bit about the relationship between horse racing and whiskey from our Whiskey Chronicles guest, Peter Thomas Fornatel, author of Brooklyn Spirits. Later in the show, we'll talk to Chef Louise Leonard in greater depth about the horsing around referenced in episode 33. Our guests on episode 34 were marketing executive Patrick Fee and distiller Kyle Merkline of McCormick Distilling Company in Weston, Missouri. They're responsible for the historic holiday distillery's latest creation, Wicked Pickle. In our conversation with Patrick and Kyle, we got an unexpected history lesson. Talk us a little bit about the history of holiday distillery. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I mean, so Ben Holiday is our guy. He's the one that started the whole thing, him and his brother, David, and they were Kentuckians. 1856 is when the distillery was actually founded and created. And, you know, back in the day, Ben Holiday might be one of the biggest names that we don't learn about enough in American history from the past. I mean, at one point, he was the largest private employer in the entire United States. Oh, wow. He basically is responsible for fixing the Pony Express when it was going bankrupt. He controlled all the wagon trails out west to where if you were drinking bourbon out on the west coast during the gold rush or anything fun like that, it probably came from this distillery. Huge amounts of history that, you know, we still have one of the original ledgers from way back then with recipes and notes. And it's just amazing that we have in a case up in our visitor center. The story was so fascinating that we invited Jordan Germano, McCormick's communications manager, to join us for a more in-depth discussion of distillery founder Ben Holiday. We'll feature that conversation in an upcoming webcast, which we'll post in our VIP lounge. Mark Lesby is a whiskey podcasting legend. In fact, he created the genre. Wanting to get to know him personally and yes, pick his brain, we interviewed the producer and host of WhiskeyCast. 
the Internet's longest-running whiskey podcast, in episode 35. Hear excerpts, some of them perhaps too juicy for this space, on the malting floor in our VIP lounge. In episode 36, we had the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Oliver, Mash House Production Manager, a.k.a. The Mash Lass, at Glengoyne Distillery in Scotland. After receiving her degree in graphic design, Lauren started her own popcorn sales and jewelry businesses. But to help pay rent, she took a part-time job as a distillery tour guide and fell in love with whiskey. When you decided that you were going to make this your career, what was your first step into your education? I did quite a bit of research because I thought I know nothing really about this apart from what I've learned from guiding. And I saw that you could do a course through the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. Mm-hmm. It was a distance um, online learning that you could do great Mm -hmm. and I thought brilliant so I applied for this course and throughout my year of tour guiding I just studied really hard and Robbie who's our distillery manager he got wind that I was studying and wanting to do this qualification and it just goes to show what a lovely company they are they actually then paid for me to go and sit this exam so I didn't need to pay for out my own pocket oh wow which was incredible they really invested in me they sent me on this three-day whiskey study trip but as you can imagine I'll leave it to yourselves that whiskey students when we get together in uh, Speyside there wasn't much studying that went on right (laughs) well you have to taste and nose and experience all of it that's all study right yes there's an applied science after all yes that's what we told ourselves <laughs> After that, it was brilliant, and, and meeting other people in the same boat as me, and um, from all, people came from all over the world for this course as well. I met a real eye opener into what this industry, what my career was going to look like. It was a fantastic weekend. Let me ask: What was the ratio between men and women? Was there more men, or was it about even? A lot more men than women. There was actually only two of us out of the whole class were ladies and in going into production. Among our several season one guests who made the transition from comparatively dry professional pursuits to whiskey making was David DeFazio, founder of Wyoming Whiskey. In episode 37, the lawyer turned whiskey maker shared a few colorful details of how seizing an unexpected opportunity launched a whiskey journey marked by trial, error, and ultimately success. Started my own firm, which has since grown to four attorneys and a great office manager and whatnot. But in 06, Brad actually gave me a phone call in June and asked me if I would be willing to come by the office to entertain a proposal. And I rode my bike over. I walked into Brad's office and Kate came in behind me. The door slams. And Brad looked at me square in the eye and said, Kate and I have decided we want to make bourbon. And I laughed and looked at Kate and she wasn't laughing. And I said, are you serious? (laughs) And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, how the hell do you make bourbon? And he said, that's for you to figure out. We'd like to thank Woody Kane and Chris McGowan, our guests on our St. Patrick's Day episode, for donating a sample of the Busker Triple Cask Triple Smooth Irish Whiskey to our second listener giveaway. Other items in the giveaway included a signed copy of the Mr. Boston Official Bartender's Guide, edited by Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. The Cocktail Guru, a package of Brazilian coffee from Unleashed Coffee, an Irish coffee cocktail glass, and Pamela Wisnitzer's recipe for the Blind Abbott, a tasty twist on the traditional Irish coffee. All of these items were provided by the guests who appeared on our first webcast, also released on St. Patrick's Day. For more details on the Busker Irish Whiskey, listen to episode 38 of Spirits of Whiskey, or check out Woody's video in our VIP lounge. While you're there, check out that first webcast and learn more than you thought you might about the history of Irish coffee. Lastly, congratulations to Daniel Wong of Sherman Oaks, California, for winning our St. Patrick's Day giveaway. 
While more than a few of our Season 1 distillers were brewers, either home or professional, before becoming whiskey makers, Lisa Roper-Wicker, president, distiller, and blender at Widow Jane Distillery in Brooklyn, New York, is the only to have worked as a winemaker. In Episode 39, we learned how Lisa went from winemaking in America's heartland to whiskey making in the center of the hipster universe. This was at White Moon Winery. Okay. okay. Yes. And so I met Steve Beam during that time because that winery was only a few miles from Steve. And we oh, wow. we met that October. I'd moved there in August and hit it off and started to be each other's extra set of hands in the evenings. And then the couple that started the winery, unfortunately, decided to divorce. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon in the wine industry for divorce to take down a winery. And mm. so I saw the writing on the wall, but I already had the distillation bug, right? That's the reason I went to Kentucky because I uh, one of the first things I did was get myself on the legislative committee with the wine groups, get the laws changed to get a still so I could make some brandy. Anyway, so Steve and Paul Beam, I resigned the winery one day, booked a ticket to Sonoma thinking, well, I'll work a harvest in Sonoma and then come back to Kentucky and regroup. And Paul and Steve Beam took me to dinner 24 hours after I resigned the winery and hired me full time for the distillery. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. For culinary culture, home to the cocktail collection, has a YouTube channel, Eats Drinks TV. Streaming now are cocktails, the grand tour, culinary quickies, music and booze with Mo, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, Mighty Fine Wine, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube at Eat Drinks TV and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Hey, Louise, nice to have you on our happy finale day. How's it going? It, so today, I, you, I don't know if you can see me right now, but I'm wearing a swag shirt from the Teeling Brothers. They sent us uh, a nice little, their logo on a shirt, which is fantastic. So I thought it's a great day to wear swag to do the season finale. I know we were talking earlier and you said some of the most interesting things that you found being a foodie girl. We talked about Bryn, which was our fourth episode. And you said that it was very interesting whiskey, which I agree. It's quite different than most whiskeys because it has a very different taste flavor profile. So why why don't you tell me what you thought about that and what makes you want to reminisce about that particular whiskey? The reason why this one kind of came to mind is because it struck me as something I never really tasted before. And it really seemed quite different than, I don't know, than any of the classic whiskeys. And when I heard the backstory, I really then thought, okay, I can actually taste that this is French. In my mind, it made sense. There was this like floral perfumey quality about it. And I I liked the story about a ballerina. Oftentimes when I'm pairing, I tend to like to put myself in some sort of fantasy world where I'm tasting this and eating a certain thing. With pairings, it's like sometimes I have the opportunity to actually have the whiskey, work through a few recipes and come up with the perfect pairing. But then oftentimes it's just a concept that I have. And then I work through that after the fact. And this was just a concept. I really firmly believe that if I were in a Parisian park, lush with flowers, and I had a little nip of this whiskey and I had some nice cheese, like a triple creme brie, some fresh cherries, some handsome people walking around, I can see the whole thing happening. That was very interesting. 
Yeah, I, I always find that one very interesting. I even sometimes get a little bu- bubble gum on that one, which I don't know if that's a normal thing or if I just have a weird palate, but I get bubble gum sometimes, like a little hint. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I guess that's everyone. Well, <laughs> You're like speechless. Um, I don't know what to say about that. Everyone has a different palate. And so obviously what I'm going to taste is not always going to be the same as what you're going to taste. And if bubble gum is what you tasted, then you have a different scene going on in your head. You might be like at an amusement park <laughs> drinking this whiskey. I was thinking maybe I'd be taking the elevator up and down on the Eiffel Tower. That's like a roller coaster. I know we didn't have a lot of food going on that we got to taste from our whiskey people but we did talk to the triplets from Pappy Van Winkle and they did supply us with some hot sauce and some maple syrup and I thought it'd be fun to reminisce about that because it's like the one thing we got to taste that wasn't whiskey but was made with whiskey yeah I definitely wanted to talk about that just the idea of whiskey hot sauce and maple syrup of course that made me want chicken it made me want chicken wings in particular. I love cooking any sort of poultry or meat over an open fire. So after I tasted both of those condiments, I thought, oh my gosh, I need to make some hot wings, but like a sweet, spicy hot wing, but oak fired, something smoky. And then with that whiskey at all, that all sounded so good to me. That was certainly one of One of my favorite little tastes that we've had this season, for sure. Yeah, actually, I've been using the hot sauce a lot recently. I've had a lot of taco nights for some reason lately. I've just been wanting tacos. And I've been making chicken tacos and and turkey tacos and beef tacos. And I decided I'm going to try this uh, instead of taco sauce. And I like it's my new taco sauce. And then I also, with the maple syrup, when I do smoked ham, I definitely put some of that in my ham. And also, I've been smoking burnt ends. And I have a really great recipe that I've massaged and I use that maple syrup in that as well. It's really good. Oh, yeah. Anywhere you um, a little bit of sweetness would be perfect for that. Yeah, yeah. So what are your, some of your favorite moments? I know that we had a good time with you when we had Pete uh, on our Pinhook episode because we got to talk to him about how you guys used to work together on his book and you guys knew each other from New York. So is that one of your favorite moments on the show? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I can sit and talk about food all day and I can pair away all day. But of course, my favorite moment is going to be chatting with my good buddy, Pete. He's he's my brother from another mother. I've known him for really, let's see, somewhere between 20 and 25 years, over 20, less than 25. We're not that old, but pretty old. And yeah, and so I had great fun chatting with him. And he's such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to not only horse racing, but also whiskey and various spirits. And he and I worked together on his book, Brooklyn Spirits. We've done so much cooking together over the years. We've thrown so many parties and all of our parties are always intertwined with what we're drinking. So it usually starts with, okay, what beer are we going to have or what spirit are we going to have? And then what's the food that's going to come from that? That was just a very obvious discussion, I suppose, the Spirits of Whiskey podcast. What do you think was the most surprising whiskey that we had on the show this year? that you tasted? Probably the most surprising was the Wicked Pickle. And I will say this, I am not disparaging you, Wicked Pickle. I am giving you a compliment. I'm going to tell you this. (laughs) I had low expectations because I generally don't like flavored 
whiskeys, really. And certainly when I hear a whiskey right. that's flavored with pickle, I'm like, okay, so are they just going for a pickleback concept all in one bottle? And is this meant for 21 year olds or whatever? And if so, that's fine. But <laughs> chances are I was not going to like it. But I did. Yay. I thought it was tasty. Yeah, it's surprisingly good. Yeah, I thought it was very tasty. And I um, immediately thought, I'm going to use this in my Bloody Mary. I've been known for my Bloody Marys for many years. I was a bartender in New York for a very long time. I always worked Sunday mornings, which meant I always made Bloody Marys. I grew up in Milwaukee. We are known right. for our Bloody Marys there. So instead of vodka, this whiskey would be absolutely perfect in a Bloody and just bring a different quality to the cocktail in a totally different way. So yeah, that was my biggest surprise of the season. I was like, wow, I like this. I was expecting not to. So yeah. the moral of the story I did too. is you have open yeah. mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with you on all these parts. There's been so many things that you've talked about on the show that I've just, it's made my mouth water and I've tried many of them. Nothing has been bad, even if I made it. <laughs> so that's good. But good one of my favorites know. that I did was the farmer's cheese blints with the cherries, the flambe from episode 16 with the the cherries from Traverse City. And they make some fantastic cherries there as well as fantastic whiskey, but it was really good. And it's fun to make because it's like blowing up in your face. It's fun. So that was some good time. And All right dessert but it can also be brunch i guess you could you could justify anything at any time of the day if you want that's fine by me i have no rules about when people eat what it's not that's not my business but that the thing i like about that is it's not so sweet blintzes aren't really that sweet there's a little sweetness to it but that they're not meant to be super sugary you can see how it would work having any time of the day yeah absolutely awesome thank you so much for being here on the show for uh almost all 40 episodes you appeared except for when we didn't have a something to pair with actually like a book but yeah everything else you've been on and we've gotten to, to try some wonderful pairing ideas and recipe ideas and it's been great having you and i look forward to seeing you in season two cheers carrie it's been fun thanks so much for having me For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to listen to our series, The Malting Floor, be able to watch extra video content related to past episodes, and you'll enjoy access to our webcast series and other spinoffs not available to anyone else. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salonchava. Salonchava.